Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with climate. What's been going on with the climate this week? Um, well, it's always good news when we talk about climate. Uh, the World Meteorological Organization declared this week uh, it's something that's probably apparent to anybody who's been alive and in the Northern Hemisphere for the past couple of months, uh, declared that not only was this past August the hottest August in recorded history, it was the second hottest month overall behind, yes, this past July. So we've had the two hottest months in history in the past two months. Uh, the WMO also says that uh, global ocean temperatures were averaging just a bit under a balmy 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 21 degrees Celsius last month, which is also apparently a record. Um, I'm sure I don't need to tell you or, or the listeners that this is all fine and normal and, uh, and good, really, for, for human flourishing. That's what I thought, Derek. Well, we'll keep you all updated on what's been going on. With <laughs> Certainly, it's no reason for governments to pay attention no, to, you know, no. fossil fuel use or, or anything like that. No, they should dude, just keep on doing what they're doing. Pedal to the metal, uh, man. That's yeah, how I live absolutely. my life. All right. Let's talk about Syria, particularly the fighting between Kurdish and Arab networks in the Syria's east. Yeah, there's been, um, for a week and a half now, um, increasingly serious conflict going on in uh, primarily in Deir Ezzor province in eastern Syria, although it's spread now to other regions, Hasaka province, uh, which is in the far northeast, for example, between the Syrian Democratic Forces, which, of course, is, is predominantly run by Kurds, by the Kurdish YPG militia, and Arab tribes. This all began last weekend, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, when the SDF arrested the commander of what's called the Derazor Military Council, which is one of the SDF's constituent parts. It's one of the Arab kind of uh, components of the SDF that that were, were brought into the group to try and kind of uh, minimize its uh, its Kurdishness and ease some concerns among the uh, Arab populations of the region about having the SDF in control of so much territory. Uh, they arrested the the commander of that council, a man named uh, Ahmed Al Khabil, for uh, it's it's not entirely a variety of things. Apparently, he's been smuggling. He's been in, involved in drug trafficking. He may be negotiating kind of uh, on his own with the Syrian government, which the SDF obviously. Uh, would prefer that he not be doing. Uh, so they arrested him, and that seemed to kick off, or that did kick off a, a round of fighting between uh, some of his supporters and the rest of the SDF. Fighting has spread outside the province. SDF positions are being targeted by Syrian opposition factions that reject the regional autonomy. Now, the military council, the Derazor military council and the SDF announced on Wednesday uh, that they had come to an accord about Ahmed al-Khabil, that he would be re removed from his post and replaced and done and dusted, everything's fine. Well, not really. The fighting has continued now for another week uh, and has really escalated into what I think increasingly people are viewing as a conflict between the SDF and Arab tribal networks, you know, much larger 
conflict is rooted in grievances that are much more fundamental and go deeper than uh, any one commander's uh, status or the arrest of any one person. Uh, this has to do with the ways that the SDF has administered the territory under its control. There are resentments, partly ethnically based, but partly just based on sort of distribution, uh, the distribution of booty, uh, essentially of oil revenue and other things that the tribes feel like they're not getting their share of, of the, the, the goodies uh, that the SDF is hoarding it to itself. Uh, so the fighting has continued and has, uh, has gotten more serious, I think more fundamentally uh, serious. Now, the head of the uh, SDF, uh, Muslim Abadi, gave an interview to Reuters that was published on Thursday in which he said he's listening. He wants to talk to the Arab uh, tribal notables in Derazor, especially to hear their grievances and address them. And so he's making some outreach to them to try to calm things down. Part of that, I think, is going to involve releasing uh, any Arab uh, militia fighters who the SDF has detained over the past week and a half. Uh, now, underlying all of this is the fact that the U.S. military is still occupying uh, a big chunk of eastern Syria, especially the, the parts with the oil resources, and it can't maintain that unless the Kurdish-dominated SDF and these Arab tribes are at least able to pretend to get along with one another, uh, if not outright, you know, put some of these grievances to bed. If they're going to continue to fight, if that relationship is going to continue to break down, then that U.S. occupation is going to become, uh, I think, untenable. So the U.S. has sent delegations to the region to try and talk to the parties over the past few days. Uh, and there's definitely some, uh, I think, white knuckling going on in Washington about uh, where this is heading and what it could mean for uh, the precious and uh, wholly illegal uh, U.S. presence there. Uh, Derek, we have a presence in Syria? Who knew? I thought we, the empire just does good around the world. Uh, <laughs> well, we do. We're, I mean, we're obviously doing good in Syria. It's just that, you know, we're technically not supposed to be there under the every rule of the rules-based <laughs> order that we keep talking about. We're no. not supposed to be there, but... But, you know, I the rules don't know. apply to us. They're for other people to follow, Derek, not for the U.S. I, I don't believe this. All right. Speaking about, I guess, the region, let's talk about Saudi Arabia and its extension of the oil production cut. Uh, yeah, I mentioned this because it's going to hit people uh, in the holiday season if you're traveling. So uh, the Saudi government announced on Tuesday that it is extending its unilateral one million barrel per day cut in oil production. This is a cut that they first instituted in July when oil prices were around 70-ish dollars per barrel, depending on which uh, you know type of oil and which package we're looking at. That's too low for the Saudis. They need oil to be, uh, I don't know exactly what their break-even price is. It's somewhere in the, the around 80, I think, but obviously more is better. The cut uh, has successfully boosted uh, or been part of the process or the phenomenon that has successfully boosted oil prices now to around $90 per barrel at last check. And they're going to extend that cut through the end of this year, at least. Uh, now, the Saudis are losing some market share as a result of this. There are indications that their overall oil revenue has taken a hit, probably not as much of a hit as it uh, was going to take uh, with lower, sustained lower oil prices, so they've uh, done better than they would have otherwise. Uh, but it is a bit of a trade-off. Now, the Russian government also announced, uh, undoubtedly in, in concert with the Saudis, that it's extending a 300,000 barrel per day cut in oil exports 
through the end of the year as well. So this is all going to maintain uh, the idea is to maintain oil at this $90 per barrel ish level uh, and maybe even see it go up because demand market analysts expected demand for oil will increase uh, later in the year as the Chinese economy in particular uh, begins to or China begins demanding more uh, more oil toward the end of the year. It's, it's expected that that will go up uh, and therefore prices will will presumably follow. Thanks, Derek. So people, Derek's telling you first, don't travel. Uh, let's talk about India, its preparations for the G20 and perhaps a name change. Uh, yeah, so the Indian government is getting ready to host the G20 summit. This is the 18th annual G20 summit in New Delhi. It's beginning on Saturday. Uh, they're already under something of a cloud. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is the big driver here. It will undoubtedly dominate the forum to the obvious detriment of things that really need to be talked about, like climate change, like debt around the world, the, the developing world's especially unsustainable debt load, conversations that need to be had, that these wealthy uh, nations need to be having will be washed away, uh, undoubtedly, by Ukraine, all Ukraine all the time. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is not, unsurprisingly, not going to attend. He doesn't want to spend uh, his time being harangued, I guess. Uh, about the war. But also, we found out this week that Xi Jinping isn't going to be there either. It's unclear why he's skipping, and she usually attends these things. He, he's usually a fixture at, uh, at G20 meetings, so uh, it's unclear why. Uh, I've seen it interpreted as a, an insult to the Indian government. Chinese-Indian relations are not necessarily great. Uh, I've seen it suggested that he's trying to snub the G20, uh, in favor of BRICS is this sort of alternative. I don't think BRICS really is uh, a G20. I don't view it as a G20 alternative. I think that's a little bit loony. Maybe he's just tired and he doesn't want to go anywhere. That's also possible. Uh, who knows? But the upshot being that the assuming that the G20 can even agree on an end of summit statement, which is far from certain, it's it's not going to have, it's going to have even less import. I mean, these things already don't have any import, but it's going to have even less uh, import than usual because she was not there. Now, as far as the name change, there is a <laughs> like all week a, a, a scuttlebutt going around because the president of India, Drupadi Murmu, uh, sent out dinner invitations for the G20 that referred to her in English as President of Bharat. Now, Bharat is an ancient alternative name for India. It is specifically cited as an alternative name in the Indian constitution. Uh, but typical practice for the Indian government is to refer to the country as Bharat when issuing documents in Hindi, uh, but to refer to it as India uh, in English documents. So this has caused a bit of a buzz. There's suggestions that uh, the Hindu nationalist government of Narendra Modi is planning some big name change. And, uh, you know, I've seen it battered around online. Uh, the Pakistani government even went so far as to suggest, or uh, there's been rumors anyway, that they would claim the name India then if, if India dropped the name India uh, to go with Bharat, that, that Pakistan would start calling itself India. It's all very uh, silly, I think, especially uh, at a point where this is just about wording on a dinner invitation. So I don't know uh, how much discourse to, to waste on it. To, to make an official name change would require uh, an amendment to the Constitution, and I don't believe Modi has enough support to do that in Parliament. Uh, I mean, he may be able to amass it, but on its face, it doesn't appear that he does. 
it's possible that the Indian government could go the route of Turkey, which, uh, you know, is asking people to call it Turkey instead of Turkey and in international forums. Uh, it, uh, Persia back in the 1930s uh, changed its name uh, internationally to Iran, which it had already been calling, you know, internally it had already been the name of the country. So it could go the route of, of those countries and ask that, Barat be used in international forums, but but I don't even think we're at that point yet. It's just something that's gotten a lot of uh, chatter. Pakistan naming itself India would be one of the all time owns. So I encourage that would be them fantastic. to do that. <laughs> so funny. I mean, I I have to hand it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to hand it to the government of Pakistan too often, but that would be. <laughs> you, you do not have to hand it to ISIS, Derek. You do not. Uh, you do not have to hand it to ISIS. But that that would be uh, that would be a pretty. Uh, epic trolling, sir, as they say. As epic trolling, say. epic trolling. All right, let's talk about North Korea and Kim might meet with Putin. Yes, the New York Times reported on Monday and it's since picked up, been picked up more widely that Kim Jong-un uh, is heading to Russia to Vladivostok later this month to uh, participate in a conference there and uh, mainly to meet with Vladimir Putin about, I guess, supplying the Russian military with weapons. This has been something that's been bandied about for months now. The U.S. has been uh, accusing North Korea of considering the possibility of supplying Russia with things like artillery shells and anti-aircraft ammunition, the kinds of stuff that, that the Russian military doesn't make enough of anymore to sustain what has basically been an artillery war or is largely an artillery war uh, in Ukraine, but that North Korea still churns out quite efficiently because that's uh, still a, one of the, the core elements of their deterrence, uh, military deterrence. Uh, so Kim is allegedly going to ask Putin for food, first of all, food aid, but also for high-tech components, the kinds of things that, that Russian manufacturing does focus on, components for satellites, submarines, that sort of thing, in return for providing these more basic uh, munitions to the Russians. Now, the U.S. government has been, as I say, accusing North Korea of, for months of uh, you know, potentially supplying the Russians with weapons and insists that it, its threats have forestalled that possibility uh, to date. Uh, it's issuing threats again to punish North Korea should it violate U.N. sanctions. And it would violate U.N. sanctions for the North Koreans to do this. I, I don't know what the threat could possibly be. And they don't go into detail. And it it's sort of like, what do you have left to sanction here in North Korea? Probably not very much. But, you know, it's sort of a, like, if you, you know, you better not do this or else kind of thing. I don't know what the or else uh, would entail. But it does seem like... Uh, there is some kind of meeting happening between Kim and Putin this later this month that uh, will probably involve discussion of an arms deal. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Sudan. There a lot happened there this past week. Uh, yes. So uh, the Biden administration on Wednesday issued its first uh, sanction on an individual connected to the conflict in Sudan between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese military. Uh, it sanctioned Abdurrahim Dagalo, the deputy commander of the RSF, and indeed the younger brother of the leader of the RSF, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. Previously, the U.S. had sanctioned companies uh, with ties to either the RSF or the Sudanese military. This is the first time they've targeted an individual uh, in announcing the sanctions. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, cited 
the uh, younger Degalo's alleged involvement in human rights abuses, particularly in uh, the Darfur region. Uh, the other thing of note here is that Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the commander of the Sudanese military, who suddenly all over the place after spending most of this conflict holed up in uh, Khartoum in the army headquarters is uh, in Qatar today, actually on Thursday, he is uh, presumably trying to drum up international support. Now he's been to Egypt uh, just in the past couple of weeks also. And now he now in Qatar, I think it's interesting because he's trying to appeal to a, a very different audience in Qatar. Uh, the Egyptian government has a long-standing connection with the Sudanese military, and it's mostly based in kind of a military-to-military secular uh, sense. The Qatari connection to, to Sudan was more rooted in the Islamist support for former President uh, Omar al-Bashir, who was ousted back in 2019 and uh, long before this all kicked off. But Burhan has been, there's been speculation and probably with, with some basis that he's been interacting or, or kind of aligning himself with uh, some of those Islamist elements of the former Bashir regime. Uh, and he may be appealing to Qatar on that basis. But, um, you know, people who have followed politics in the Middle East over the last few years, Qatar and Egypt have been on opposite sides of the secular versus Islamist divide for quite some time. So it's interesting, I think, uh, that Burhan is trying to appeal to both of these constituencies, and, and we'll have to see if uh, he can get anywhere with that. Thanks, D. Let's talk about Niger, and it looks like the French might pull out. Yes, uh, the French media outlet Le Monde uh, reported this week uh, that the French government is negotiating with officers in the Nigerian military. Now, these are not officers who are involved in the junta that now rules Niger. There are instead people the French government or the French military has interacted with in the past, apparently, uh, about the possibility of drawing down the French military presence in Niger. There is uh, There was word from uh, France 24 then later uh, this week that the, uh, the French military is planning what sounds like a pretty dramatic uh, scaling down of its presence in Niger, especially uh, with respect to its drone and sort of other uh, aerial reconnaissance operations, and that it may be considering uh, a relocation of French forces to Chad, uh, which is nearby, of course, um, also under a military government, but this is a military government that uh, that France likes, uh, so it's okay. At this point, this is still very speculative. I haven't seen any official announcement, but it it jibes at least with what the junta has been saying. They've been, uh, you know, since taking power, been talking about a, a quick French departure from the country, and, and obviously uh, the French government doesn't want to look like it's cowing to the the wishes of a junta whose authority it doesn't recognize but it does sound like they're they're making contingencies for getting out of niger or at least significantly reducing uh their military presence let's talk about gabon what what's happened since the coup there yes uh gabon the big news i guess is that uh, the leader of the the junta brice oligui and gama uh, officially became Gabon's interim head of state on Monday. Uh, this was apparently celebrated on the streets of Libreville, large crowds demonstrating. 
uh, he gave an uh, inaugural address of sorts in which he talked about uh, adopting a new constitution, making political reforms, uh, anti-corruption types of things, and then holding what he called free, transparent, credible, and peaceful elections at some indeterminate date. Ali Bongo, the ousted uh, president-ish, if you want to call him that, uh, of Gabon, is still in under house arrest. But the junta did say this week that they're willing to let him leave the country. I'm sure they would be happy for him to leave the country. Uh, but he's, you know, known to be in poor health. He suffered a stroke a few years ago, uh, and you know, is thought to have not, not ever fully recovered from that. So they've been uh, very. Uh, open to the idea that he's allowed to leave if he wants to to get medical treatment. Whether he would be welcomed back, I think, is another question. There has been some frostiness, I would say, between the junta and the political opposition. Albert Ondaosa, who was uh, who lost uh, allegedly, at least officially, the presidential election to Bongo uh, that that precipitated this this coup in some some fashions has been suggesting that the the junta is not really looking to replace Gabon's ruling elite it's just a faction of the elite uh, kind of getting rid of another faction and taking power for itself uh, so he's been questioning the the junta's commitment to actual political change i will say there's been uh it was reported on thursday by afp and i've just seen this you know before we started recording that the economic community of central african states has agreed with the junta uh to draw up a roadmap this is what afp is reporting uh for the restoration of democratic governance or civilian governance uh after the coup that doesn't there's nothing to that other than an agreement to try to put something like this together. So there's no details, I think, to speak of just, uh, but it does sound like they're on something uh, of the same page in terms of a transition, which is certainly different from the way that, uh, or the situation, let's say in Niger with the economic community of West African states where things are still quite hostile. So, uh, you know, internationally, uh, the reaction to this coup has been relatively muted, sort of pro forma, I think, and looks like it could be heading toward a, a, a quick negotiated settlement. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Ukraine and let's talk about Blinken's visit. Yes, uh, Anthony Blinken made a visit to Ukraine on Wednesday. You may have seen video of him gingerly eating McDonald's French fries, something he has clearly never done because he's a mutant uh, in, in Kiev on Wednesday to demonstrate, you know, isn't this great that there's a, a McDonald's in this uh, in this city? You know, American culture is uh, is taking over the world. Anyway, the low point of his visit was probably uh, the artillery barrage that killed at least 17 people, a Russian artillery barrage that killed at least 17 people uh, in the city of uh, Kostyantivka in Donetsk Oblast. That certainly cast a pall uh, over Blinken's visit on Wednesday. Uh, but the uh, high point, I guess, from the U.S. perspective was the announcement of around a billion dollars, I believe, in U.S. aid. Some portion of that uh, will go to new military equipment, uh, new HIMARS units are apparently in the offing, as well as anti-tank weapons. And this includes depleted uranium munitions. The UK is already sending Ukraine depleted uranium, but the US had not taken that step yet. People are not familiar with depleted uranium. It is extraordinarily bad stuff. It's very effective 
because it's very dense. It's very effective in an anti-armor capacity or armor-piercing capacity. But it is low-level radioactive, and it is a heavy metal, and it has a tendency uh, when you use it in combat to aerosolize, and so people breathe it in, and they're exposed to the radiation, they're exposed to the heavy metal toxicity, uh, and it does very bad things to people's bodies. So it's one of those things that probably should not exist but we're sending it to Ukraine because uh, they need it, I guess. The reason that depleted uranium is so controversial is it's essentially a, a byproduct of, of nuclear waste, and it is, it is radioactive. The UK stockpile even contains some uh, trace amounts of plutonium, and much of this was made in the 80s and 90s, and, and the stuff that we've been sending out to Ukraine, some of it may even have expired. The other thing of note in Ukraine uh, is that Volodymyr Zelensky this week sacked his defense minister, Alexei Reznikov. Reznikov has been on, I think, borrowed time for a while now. He's overseen uh, a ministry that has been uh, mired in scandal in recent months about procurement deals that, you know, for example, paid well over market value for uh, equipment, which suggests somebody is creaming money off the top, not Reznikov uh, himself, but he's in charge at a time when this kind of these kind of shenanigans are going on in the middle of a war, which is really, uh, you know, you got to hand it to the Ukrainians for keeping the graft and, and uh, corruption going even in a time of war. So uh, I, I think that's probably uh, the main reason he's finally being removed. Uh, now, Reznikov, to be fair, has also been defense minister for about two years and spent almost all of that dealing with the Russian invasion. So he may not exactly be broken up uh, about uh, moving on to another job. And, you know, he may be given an ambassadorship or something uh, as consolation prize. But, uh, you know, it does highlight the fact that that the Ukrainian military has been a hub of scandal to, I think, uh, the great detriment of the Ukrainian government. There's no overt indication yet that that these scandals have involved the misuse of foreign funds or foreign supplied weapons uh but that's kind of lurking in the background of the possibility that some of the the uh the aid that western governments have been providing to ukraine has been diverted to to in, in directions that it was not intended to be uh diverted into all right thanks derek uh let's talk about brazil there's actually some good news Yes, uh, I like to throw a little good news in here every once in a while. Uh, the uh, Brazilian Environment Minister uh, Marina Silva announced this week that deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon declined by more than 66% year over year in August. Uh, that is similar to the decrease that that was seen in July, again, year over year, and comes uh, at a time of year when deforestation is usually at its heaviest uh, you know, the, the forest kind of dries out. It becomes easier to clear cut areas. Uh, now, obviously, you're, they're working from a, a pretty skewed baseline because, you know, literally, if you put Jair Bolsonaro in front of a tree, he would just chop it down on general principle. Uh, and of course, he, it was his administration that was overseeing all that deforestation last year. But it suggests that Lula's initiative to protect the the Amazon or his his efforts to kind of overcome and, and rebuild the Brazilian government's capacity to protect the Amazon uh, are working. So uh, that is uh, definitely good news uh, and good news from an environmental perspective, which, uh, again, kind of rare. Let's end on the United States and <laughs> Biden taking a page from Sarah Palin's book. Yeah, so this I also arguably good news, although it's sort of like, uh, you know, as uh, the Biden administration often does, trying to have it both ways. The uh, administration 
announced on Wednesday that it is banning new oil and gas drilling over about 10.6 million acres, uh, around 40% of the Alaskan National Petroleum Reserve. Uh, this covers a lot of ecologically sensitive territory. Uh, it covers like uh, about 3 million acres uh, in the Beaufort Sea, uh, which puts a, a large swath of the uh, Arctic Ocean territory that, that is within uh, U.S. maritime waters off limits uh, for new drilling. It, it's, it's a, environmentally, it's fine. It comes after the administration greenlit uh, a pretty massive ConocoPhillips project in the NPR and and took a lot of heat for it. So it's one of the, it, it, you get the sense that it's sort of like, you know, trying to paper over that with the environmentalist constituency of the Democratic Party. Nevertheless, I mean, uh, obviously it is better to put this this territory off limits. Now, for all I know, the they'll, they'll, you know, oil companies will sue and take it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will uh, say that we just have to like, bomb Alaska and let all the oil kind of come up to the surface. Uh, the nuts on the Supreme Court could do anything at this point, I suppose. But for now, at least, this seems like a, a, a positive step. But again, like a half measure uh, in terms of the, the climate change fight, you would prefer that no new oil and gas drilling projects be going on in Alaska. This is only a partial, uh, at best, I think, victory. Thanks, Derek. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.